Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Talk Recorded live. Good evening and welcome to this edition of the Women of the Revolution. My name is Susan Bonner and I am here with Deb, who is my researcher and she does very, very well. And this is a uh, historical, and, and it has politics in it too, because we uh, compare and contrast what's going on now with what's happened in the revolution. We've been doing this show for three and a half years, if you're just joining us, and we haven't run out of women yet. Now, we might not have a lot of information on them, but they're still relevant, and either you know, through their husbands or their family, through their religion, to the revolution. And that has you know, any aspect that a woman contributes to is very important. And we're finding out more and more how important these women really were. So how are you doing tonight, Deb? I'm doing just fine, thank you. Did you get any rain yet? No. Well, that's funny because I was just watching the news and they were showing a a bunch of moisture coming up from Portland. Yeah, we're supposed to get rain, uh, let's see, Thursday and Friday. And it's going to start cooling down some. So, well, and this is very important because here out west, this is fire season. So, if we don't get any moisture, and usually we get moisture from where Deb is right now um, from Washington State, it comes over through that Oregon and into Montana. And if they don't get anything, we're never going to get anything. It's very rare that we get stuff coming down from Canada because we're very close to the Canadian, well, we're on the Canadian border. Our uh, state borders the Canadian borders, as does Oregon and Washington State. So that's why I always bring this up and about the weather, because climate does change, right? Yeah, yeah. Plus, there's been a lot of fires in Canada, so the air has just been really smoky. Yeah, they were showing that in the news, too. Yeah, there's a lot of fires in Canada. Mm Mm-hmm. So it's a very important part of everyday life when you live out in the West. Um. I baked bread today. I started baking bread at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and I just, well, was a, it was 4, 4 o'clock. I started baking at 4, and I just took the bread out of the oven. And I was speaking off air with Deb about, I just don't understand how these pioneer and colonial women did this. That's one, and it's not even like a big loaf like you get in a supermarket. It's just a regular 8 by 12 loaf pan. And it took me four hours to do. And Deb was explaining to me how they their, their lives were. Um, so can you say that again? Yeah. Well, they had their baking day. You know, they had their days for doing stuff. And you would do your baking for the week on one day. There was the wash day when you washed the clothes for the, the week or the two weeks, whatever. Um, there was... There was uh, your your candle making day, and that might even be um, spread, you know, like times throughout the day or the week because you you had to make enough candles to get you through the winter, you know, when the the, the you know 
shorter light day of the day. So you, you specified some time to do that, and that's what you did. You did besides your chores and feeding the family. You know, you sat down, you made candles, and you had to make soap, and so you had your time for that. And the thing is, is you had to prepare for the winter. You had to prepare for the day, the week, the month, and the and the season. So you 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 pretty much you know you you prioritize as to what was coming up, and even seasonally, like in the spring, you you uh, make sure your seeds were ready to go, and you had to work the the land, and your you know like usually the woman the women had um, what they called kitchen gardens which they fed their family from. And in the beginning, you so you had to get the, the, the uh, garden ready to be, to have the seeds put in, and then you had to, you know, keep at that, make sure it was all growing and everything. And then there was the harvest. And then there was the, the uh, putting up for the winter where, you know, you, you'd have your root cellar and you'd, you'd pick up, pick the root vegetables and, and put as much as you could put away for, you know, like yams and potatoes and, and uh, any kind of root and vegetables that you could grow, onions and such. So you'd have them throughout the winter. And um, you, you then, you know, I mean, there was always something. It was like there, if you had sheep, there was sheep shearing season. You, there was a time when you sheared the sheep to sell the wool in the market. And then if you were... Um, Thinking of the winter, and you had more kids. You know, the older kids would gotten bigger, so you'd have, and you had to make sure that your family had enough clothes. So if if you, I mean, good grief, they they had spinning wheels at night. They would sit and do their sewing or their 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 darning, um, and and you know, they never sat idle. There was always something to be doing. The, the men would come in and repair whatever leather work they had, like you know, a horse harness or or something like that that they could do inside in front of the fire or out, outside on the porch if it was summer. I, there was just so many short things that they had to to make themselves that, you know, they specified days for it. I mean, I remember my grandmother, um, and let's see, this. You know, my mom grew up in the 20s and the 30s, became an adult in the 40s, but Nana had, Monday was washing day, and my mom had two dresses to get her through the week, and then her Sunday going to church dress, and if she got them dirty, oh, because Nana only washed on on uh, Monday, and then there was baking day, and then the, the women, um, you know, during the time we're talking of, they had, uh, you know, if they were raising hogs or or beef cattle, you know, what if you if you were raising hogs and and you had a couple of hogs that you weren't going to sell but that you were going to you know um, do for to keep your your family fed. There was the week. I mean, it was it was well, I couldn't even well. The men the men went out and slaughtered the the pigs, and and then you had to drain them a certain way um, to bleed them out. You had to hang them upside down and let them bleed out for a while. 
And then when that was all taken care of, they would bring them in after they, they'd uh, gotten them butchered, and the women went to work. And they they worked for three days, and this was like late summer um, where it was still hot, so they didn't have much time to to scrape the fat and, and make the, what, what, what did they call that, the cracklings, and get the bacon and all the other parts, they had to preserve them before they spoiled. So, like, I, you know, I remember my grandma, my other grandmother, would get up at 5 in the morning and uh, and start making her bread for the week. And um, and I'd come down about, you know, 6.30 or 7 when I was staying over. And there would be the two big... Um, uh, pots, so these big, huge, like what they used to call soup pots, huge, full of dough, two of them sitting in the windows catching the sun because they had to rise for like at least, well, let's see, that big a thing would probably be two hours before she could even start kneading them. And whilst the, the dough was rising, she was making pies and cookies for us, you know, we were kids. And... um and putting the, uh, you know, if she had to, if she was going to have some kind of uh, meat thing at night, she, and she had to, she'd start in the morning, and because and, she did everything, for you know, there were no box mixes or anything in her house. So dinner would be already on the stove, you know, if the meat had to be boiled or something, and the vegetables and the stock and all, oh, my God. You know, she just stayed in the kitchen all day long because she made every meal from scratch, you know. And if we'd go out, the kids would go out, we'd all go out into the pasture and pick wild blueberries. Yeah, and we'd pick just, she had these uh, metal quart um, tins with handles on them, and we'd go out there and fill those suckers up. And because we knew she'd be making pies and and all sorts of stuff, and oh, I'll tell you. It's, but you know, you had to. You also had to um, take your if you grew wheat for your flour. You also had to take your your wheat to the mill to get it milled, you know, and bring it back home. So there was, and, and if you had the the if you grew corn and 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 you were doing seed corn to sell, you had to go out and, and get that and then bring it to town for to market. And sometimes towns were 15 miles away. Even five miles back then was a good jaunt. That was an all-day trip. So, um, you know, you're in a wagon. You're not, like, riding singly. So you could do it, you know, five, five miles and wouldn't take long. But if you're in a wagon over these bumpy roads that they had and you had a wagon full of stuff you had to go slow so and then again you know you got into town and you had and since you were in town you had your list of things to get so it was like an all-day all-day thing it was just just dropping off at the the local uh, supermarket and picking up something for dinner <laughs> you were well, thinking you know, and the thing is that, that i got i haven't had an oven here so i've been using a dutch oven for a, a cast iron Dutch oven for anything that I want to do, and and baking is extremely difficult in it because you have to put it on the stove. 
But when I was down south in Florida, we had a full homestead. We had chickens, goats, pigs that we slaughtered once a year, and uh, rabbits. So I know what you're talking about because I did it. I lived it. But the thing that you said that really struck me when we were off air is that I was all by myself. I mean, my husband helped. But oh, yeah. I, I remember making my own soap, and you have to render the pig fat from right. the pig that you slaughtered, and you have to boil it. And you have to sit there and watch it because it's very flammable. Um, you can't just leave it alone. So, I mean, I've done all this stuff before, but it still just struck me. Well, I was much younger anyway. I mean, I was well, like, well, I don't know that I am now. Yeah. Well, this is the thing. Plus, you had six kids. Right. That's what I'm saying. These is, women, that's why they had so many kids. Right. That's one reason, you know, because the boys were out in the field. And the girls were in, in the house learning how to keep house. And they had to learn all these things. I mean, there's, there, I don't know if you had the Foxfire book. I had the whole set of Foxfire books, you know, and I tried a bunch of stuff in there. And if you don't have someone who has done this all her life to teach you, it's not easy to do this. It isn't. I was a New York City girl. Right. Skirt, high heels, I mean, Long Island, the rock band, singing in rock band. And I had mm-hmm. to learn all this stuff by myself. And like what you were talking about in Florida, we were in North Florida, so it wasn't as uh, hot as South Florida. But still, if you didn't get your crops, if you didn't, we had a quarter acre garden. And if we didn't get them in by like the March 15th, you know, or 17th, St. Patrick's Day, you wouldn't, you're not going to get anything because it's too hot and most of the time. Right. right. Where I am right now, it's too cold. So right. I've been in a stream. But when we yeah, have to our animals. In Virginia, we start our season March inside. And then we wait until the last frost. Thank you, Farmer's Almanac. And, um, and then you put the seedlings out outside to... You have to, to uh, what do they call it, um, when you get them used to the outside. You don't put them in the ground yet, but you, you harden them. So then you have to do that. And then you have to put them in. And while they're hardening, you're, you're rototilling the soil and, and making sure it has enough fertilizer and everything in it, and it's, it's fine for what you're going to grow. I mean, all this stuff. And, of course, when I was a kid, my grandma was doing all this stuff. I didn't care. I didn't want anything to do with it. Oh, man, I regret that now. And and all the I mean she used to sit at night and and uh, braid rugs. She had braided rugs and she made them. You know it it would take her. She made a nine by twelve and it took her all summer to make that rug. And my, God love my my brother has it now. I'm so glad it's still in the family and it wasn't sold. Um, and I have one of her rugs uh, and she has like two or three of them, but. She sat there. I, I remember sitting across from her. I was into drawing at the time. I was going to be an artist of horses. And she, I was sitting there drawing. She was sitting there braiding a rug, you know, and no TV. You know, she might have turned the radio on once or twice a week to listen to the news, but that was it. You, you sat there and you did stuff. Well, and when you're talking about slaughtering the animals, again, in Florida, we, you know, we didn't. We had a mobile home, so we didn't have a regular slaughtering place. So, but we had we had a big table, and this is going to freak people out. We had a wooden table. Um, actually, it was just a piece of plywood on two saw hooks, 
and I would take um, uh, a solution of rosemary and vinegar. That's what I cleaned everything with down south because I didn't want any of the harsh chemicals um, going into the, the soil because we had a septic tank and uh, did well water and uh, right. we were growing all that stuff. So anyway, I would just take a, a solution of raw vinegar and rosemary and wipe the table with it. And we have to make sure that we did the slaughtering before like 11 o'clock. And we did it outside. I'd be completely yeah. out. He even butchered outside. He didn't have a building to do it in. And my job was to get a cooler full of ice water. And as soon as he was done, you plunge the, the meat, um, the animal, in the ice water. And then when he was done, like this would be with the rabbit. And then with the pig, he would cut up into pieces. And you would just put it in the ice water. And then he would bring the ice water inside. By the way, I'm crying this entire time because I'm not a murderer, okay? God yeah. did not say, thou shall not murder. He said, thou shall not. He didn't say, thou shall not kill. He said, thou shall not murder. It's two different things, ladies and gentlemen. Murdering and killing are two different things. We have to kill things. God made us that way. We're, we were at, we're omnivores, okay? We have to kill things. But, of course, I'm a city girl, and I'm, like you said, no, I hadn't been around it my entire life. I had nobody to teach me, and I'm crying hysterically, packaging up these animals and putting them mm-hmm. in the freezer as fast as possible so that there's, you know, no mold and there's no, you know, spoilage at all. Right. Um, but that was my job, and, I mean, his job was to kill them, so that was pretty damn bad. But, I mean, it was my job to package them up. And um, yeah. then Brian and I would get heavily drunk after that day because it would be a slaughter day. Mm-hmm. I know it. I grew up on Disney. Um, my father came home with Thumper. He went out shooting. He caught himself a big old rabbit. And, uh, yeah, he, uh, I didn't talk to him for three days because he had killed Thumper. And it, it just, I was, I was a little kid. And, you know, he wanted a rabbit stew. He'd grown up on rabbit stew, you know. And, and it was like, oh, you killed Thumper. I couldn't talk to him. Luckily, Though he told me that it, there was a there was a disease going around the rabbit population at the time, black fever, and the rabbit that he had shot um, had it, and so he told me he goes, look, you know, God loved my father; he could always turn something into a positive. Um, he goes, look, we're not going to eat this rabbit, and I went, good, and he goes, no, no, it was sick; it's best that it's dead because it's a horrible disease for the rabbit, and um, so it's best. So I felt better. But still, I, you know, this was after three days of not talking to him because he had killed Bumper. And, well, uh, I'll tell okay. you, rabbit's good, eat, rabbit's good eating. I've made it all different types. I've made the soup. I know. I've, I've made it deep fried. It's frigging the bomb. It's, it is. Oh, yeah. I just can't eat thumper. I just can't eat thumper. Um, I have to well, eat naked pieces of meat in cellophane packaging because uh, it was like uh, where I kept my horse when I had to board my horse out. They had a, a they bought a, 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 a meat steer and they named it T Bone. <laughs> and the kids were all over it, you know. It was like, oh, we're gonna have great meat, you know, blah blah blah. Until it came time to kill. T-bone and put them in the freezer, and they just couldn't couldn't do it. They they it was horrible. Uh, two of them couldn't eat it, and that happened to my friends who had uh, their their parents got lamb uh, or sheep for for meat to feed their kids. They had seven kids, 
you know, they had to do something. And and there was, I remember the names, Bucky, Long Ears, and um, the third one, I can't remember, but Long Ears uh, and, and Bucky, Bucky, Bucky bucked me. He, he came up behind me and sent me flying one day. But Big Ears, no, it was Big Ears. Big Ears and, and uh, the other one, I can't remember. The other one wasn't friendly, but Big Ears was just a love. And I came up to visit my friend one day, and I said, where are the sheep? And she goes, in the freezer. And she started to cry. <laughs> just, so, you know, but they did this. I mean, it was that or start. Yeah, um, I know. But that's what ha- that actually part of this is has to do with the progressives and how they brainwash us um, when we were, especially what you're saying when we were kids. Um, the half of the con- the the majority of the country didn't think of things like we did growing up in the you know, urban areas, like the urbanites But anyway, let's get to our lady, and this is. Sarah Livingston Alexander, and she is very, uh, very wealthy um, because of her husband, but it's very, she has a very sad ending, but we'll get to that later. She's also known as Lady Sterling, and we're going to get into this, and I found it very interesting that um, he was called a lord, and she was called a lady, and so was her daughter in America during colonial times, which is very rare. Deb and I have done this, like I said, for three years, and we've never heard of this before, of any kind of title of nobility given to anybody in the colony. But come to find out that it is, has, it is rare, but it did happen. So we're going to get into that as well, because I was just like, what? They're called Lord and Lady? And actually, he called himself Lord Sterling till the day he died. And that's another very interesting story, because a lot of people um, – had inheritances in Britain of nobility and that that were colonists and I didn't know this either, but they went and con- they went to contest that they were ag- and get their heritage uh, inheritance and um, Deb's family and her ancestry one of her ancestors actually did that as well so she knows a little bit more about this than I do but. We're going to start with Lady Sterling, and as always, um, we don't have that much information on her. We have a little bit more than the past two ladies that we did, but um, still, it's more about her husband. But as we always do, we 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 describe based on what the husbands are going through, what they're going through, because they have to do it as well. So, Sarah Livingston was born in October 1725 the daughter of Philip and Catherine Van Berg Livingston, and a member of a prominent Hudson Valley family. We're going back to New Jersey. We're not going to get too much into the history, but we've been to New Jersey many, 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 many times. Go back and listen to the archives. And, um, we're, yeah, we're not going to get into much of the, the New Jersey um, history. Some of the politics will come out as we're talking, but I really was pleased that Deb found out about the process for which a colonist would go back to England and try to get their inheritance. Um, they have that stupid show, Strange Inheritance, on Fox Business, and that, that always, when I hear inheritance, I think of that dumb show. Um, I don't like it. It's just 
one, I think I've listened to one episode I liked. But anyway, that's going down a rabbit hole. So Sarah Livingston was born in October 1725, a member of that prominent Hudson Valley family. Her brother Philip was a signer of the Declaration of Independence, and her brother William was governor of New Jersey. And we did, we have uh, highlighted, I think we have, yeah, highlighted um, Philip Livingston as well when we do the signers, of, the wives of the signers of the Declaration of Independence, which we'll be doing next show. So, William Alexander was born in 1726 in New York City. His father, James Alexander, was a Jacobite, which is talked about as well, which means that they're from Scotland, who emigrated to America in 1715. William received an excellent education and was officially, especially proficient in mathematics and astronomy. He became a lawyer and held various public offices. Sarah Livingston married William Alexander on March 1st, 1748, and they had two daughters, Mary and Catherine, also known as Kitty. After his father died in 1756, William engaged with his widowed mother as a merchant in New York and later became a commissary for the British Army in the French and Indian War. He served as aide-de-camp and secretary to Governor William Shirley and when the latter was being tried for dereliction of duty, William Alexander traveled to London to testify on Shirley's behalf in 1756. In 17, oh, let me just look at my notes right here for a second. Uh, okay, yeah, we're on track. So I need you to bring up um, the essay about his, his struggles in England on um, death, because we're getting into that right now. Okay. In 1757, William and his family believed that as senior male descendant of the first Earl's grandfather, he was the rightful heir to the estate of the Earl of Stirling. Stirling is part of Scotland and had been given to one of his relatives in 1603 for service to the then king, George II. The issue of importance here is that the king also gave the new Earl possession of half of Long Island and all of Maine, New Brunswick, Nova Scotia, and Newfoundland, which was immensely valuable. That's a, and that just blows my mind right there that the king's just giving all of our land away. You know? <laughs> but I know they were English. I know we were, you know, of the crown, so he could do whatever he wants. Um, okay. So we're going to get, because this one, just, it just says that he spent the next four years in Great Britain chasing his inheritance. But Deb has found a more in-depth, description of what he had to go through. So um, I want her to do that next. Yes. Okay. I could get my little page to um, get to move. I, I will be getting... Um, oh, gosh. No, no, no. What are you doing? My poor little tablet. I think with all the research I did on this, I think I made it to have a nervous breakdown. Oh, it's doing it again. Um... Oh, this is so not good. Why did it do that? I think my, my tablet's on its way out. Because all of a sudden I get a black screen. But let's see if it'll come back. I'm I'm hoping here. Come on. I had you and no, then you went away. Okay. Oh dear. All right, let's Are you see. gonna you wanna reboot it? Yeah, I have to reboot it. Okay, I'm well then I'm gonna read I'll read this next paragraph. Okay. William spent the next four years in Great Britain, and then we're, we're going to get into more in depth when she gets up that article. 
William spent the next four years in Great Britain chasing his inheritance by gaining the recognition of first the family in Scotland, then the Scottish courts and parliament. He lived in London and among the leaders of society as he lobbied parliament for recognition of his claim. Eventually, at the cost of much of his fortune, he realized that his efforts would be futile. There was little chance that the king or parliament would give away so valuable a prize, no matter how valid his claim might be. But he continued to call himself Lord Sterling all his life. William Alexander returned to New York in 1761. Now think about this. They got married. Let me go back up. She married him in 1748. And that's only uh, like, like nine or ten years, nine years that they were together married before he goes to England. And he's there for four years. So she's all by herself with two kids <laughs> while he's facing his fortune. Um, that's a big burden on her because he's spending all this money in England trying to get this inheritance, and she's just living off what he left her, or what the you know the family has around him. How are we doing? Well, it's coming. Okay. But well, you have to remember she came from a you know well-to-do family too. Yeah, she did. That's what I'm saying. I mean, whatever her family would give her, you know, or help her out, she probably lived with them for what this period of time. Because I don't. When did they build their house? They didn't build their house till later. So she was definitely. It doesn't say, but she's definitely. Um, when did he do? He. Um. Oh, 1761. So they didn't even have their house of their own. She was definitely living with her with her family um, at the time, and they probably were living with, with the nine years that they were there because they didn't have a house until 1761. Well, they they did that too. Um, you know, then they they would live with uh, they they would live on the estate because there was God knows there was enough room in some of those houses. Okay, I finally have it back. And it seems to be working now. I think I just scared it or something. But anyways. Okay. <clears throat> so he went over to uh, England. Let's see. Does it say when he did? Married. Okay. Yeah, okay. The title Earl of Sterling became dormant or expired upon the death of Henry Alexander, the fifth Earl of Sterling, William's father, James Alexander, who had fled from Scotland in 1716. Well, they say 1716 in this one. This is um, a topic on revolving. Anyways, after participating in the Jacobite Rising, did not seek the title. Upon his death, William laid claim to the title and followed and filed suit. His relationship to the fifth earl was not through heirs of the body, but through heir male collateral and the inheritance by proximity of blood had been questioned. It was settled in his favor by a unanimous vote of a jury of twelve in the Scottish court in seventeen fifty nine and William claimed the disputed title of Earl of Sterling. 
it is not clear if the case went to court because of an unfavorable answer from the Lord Lion King of Arms concerning the peerage. Legal opinion was that this was a Scottish heir problem, so the title right was solved. This might have been unopposed as indisputable peerage, except there was a catch. The two sponsors, Archibald Campbell, 3rd Duke of Argyle, and John Stewart, 3rd Earl of Butte, encouraged William through representatives to seek the title. The goal was vast land holdings in America that the holder of the title was to enjoy. The sponsors were to receive money and land if William was successful. With this in mind, William decided to petition the House of Lords. A friend and professional agent in Scotland, Andrew Stewart, wrote and advised William not to petition the House of Lords. He felt that the right of indisputable peerage demanded that William just claim the titles as others had done. His opinion was that others lay similar claims to titles, so he would not be opposed. It is possible William did not want to commit a crime or to be found out, and if the House of Lords advanced his claim, it would be forever legal. One problem was that to prove his claim in court, two old men were called upon to testify that William did in fact descend from the first earl through his uncle named John Alexander. This might have been persuasive in a Scottish court, but might be considered dubious in England. I'm, I'm sure it was after what I've been reading about this, this title business. Um, so, let's see. Sterling inherited a large fortune from his father. He dabbled in mining and agriculture and lived a life filled with the trappings befitting a Scottish lord. So he uh, he um, took on the the title because it was approved of in the Scottish court. But I have a feeling that in England, you know, they wouldn't have uh, they wouldn't have given him the time of day with this title because it was very, well, it changed over the years and we'll get into that maybe a little later, but the uh, getting a title, there were certain titles that were inherited and certain titles that could be bought and and um, it, it, it changed where, yeah, you could go to court and get it, you know, prove that you were um, who you said you were and you were entitled to the title or the inheritance or whatever. And then there was the ones where the king was the only one who could confer that title upon you. It was not inherited or, and I mean, just because you had it didn't mean your sons would have it on, or your, your daughters would be, you know, the, the feminine part of it. It would be, it, unless the king went and your descendants. So it, it's really very, I don't know how they keep it straight. I, I really don't. And I, I don't even know. I mean, God, I read through this. And, and it started in 1066 with this, you know, title nonsense that they, they did. And, and it changed, you know, like with every king, they had their own ideas on it, and then you know the nobility had their ideas on it, and and there there were certain changes because the nobility didn't want the lesser folk to be able to you know 
sit at the table with them, basically. And, oh, gosh, it, it's a fascinating history um, of, of this, which is so foreign to us as Americans, especially now. But, uh, um, but we're seeing it happen in Washington, D.C., what they tried to do in the 17th century into the beginning of the 18th century and it didn't work then and God, you know, it shouldn't work now but they're really trying, they're really trying in there in Washington, D.C. So anyways, that was what he went through. Um, my, my, my ancestor came over from England with his parents as a kid and they were coming to America, and this was in the 1700s, or was it, no, early 1800s. Yeah, the early 1800s. They were coming to America from England, and uh, the ship, uh, they had a shipwreck. He was the only one of his family that survived uh, on the ship. As I imagine there were, I think there was a brother and a sister, I'm not quite sure, Anyways, his parents both drowned, and this was off the coast of Canada. And uh, um, so the, they they saved the ones that they saved, and he was one of them. And this French-Canadian family took him in, uh, you know, because he didn't have anybody. So he lived in, in uh, Canada, and as his, he got older, he went back to England and tried to, because his family was... Um, part of the nobility or some, you know, aristocracy. And they had an estate there. And he wanted to go and, you know, claim his his name. Now, I don't know if he had titles or if they were just really wealthy. I I'm, I have to look back at the papers. But um, but <laughs> try and he tried for 10 years. It took, he, he tried for 10 years and the family wouldn't, they wouldn't even acknowledge his presence. So, um, you know, here was one one person from Canada claiming to be this family's uh, relative, and he, you know, their nephew, and, and they're going, no, you're not, because, you know, maybe they just didn't want to share. But anyways, that was... Um, and he went from court to court to court, and of course the, the the wheels of justice do not really spin quickly anywhere. So especially in England in the 1800s, apparently. But anyways, he never did get his namesake, and and I really feel bad for for that. But uh, whatever, <laughs> he tried. <laughs> so there is your your nobility. Speaking. Okay. Do you did I wasn't sure. Did you? Or are you just going to say it? Um, well, let me read this next paragraph. Okay. So he spent, spent four years, and then he returned to New York in 1761 after a voyage of three months. He was allowed his title in America by courtesy. Um, in Tim Truman's Almanac of the Year 1776, printed by Isaac Collins of Burlington. His name is given among the members of His Majesty's Council of New Jersey as the Honorable Lord Sterling. 
General George Washington in his correspondence invariably addressed him as my lord, because at that time, we were still British subjects. Lord Sterling immediately assumed a prominent part in colonial affairs. He was appointed Surveyor General of the Providence of New Jersey and was a member of the Provincial Council. Now, it struck me and I had when we were getting the show together, why would we as colonists allow him to have Lord? And as soon as he was titled Lord, of course she was titled Lady, right? You have to remember that this was before a lot of the, this was just the very beginning of the opposition to the crown. Um, There were lords and ladies in America, because you have to remember um, that they were British subjects. And, And the thing with it is, is that, the nobility that came over here, there wasn't much, not many of the nobility settled in America. Um, they came, you know, they were given land in America by the crown, and they came over maybe, but they didn't stay long. So there was never a lot of titled um, people here. But, during this, the, 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 the beginning of the 18th century, the different colonies all had their own government, basically. But they had a royal governor, and they had the council, and then they had the assembly. And the assembly was the local people. The council was the nobility in quotes, um, either from England or the wealthy landowners here, the wealthy educated families here were in the council. The council answered to the governor, the assembly answered to the council. They, they, They tried to keep that like the monarchy, the parliament, and the house of commons. Um, and, or, you know, the House of Lords and the House of Commons, they, they tried to keep that trinity of government. Well, when King George III came in and decided to take a hands-on approach to his American colonies, which his father and, well, since uh, the, the, since the, the, the 1600s, the kings and queens and... Uh, in England, didn't really bother. They just, you know, okay, here, go colonize. You know, we'll go go over there to Virginia. Or, well, you know, there, well, there it, wasn't like it was like you were saying. There wasn't that many nobles that came over here. That would have no reason for it. Most that's why we were we came over here as uh, for religious freedom because um, they already had everything they needed over in England, and they were all of the same religion of the Church of England and. That's why we had the Puritans and the Baptists here and the Catholics and, and all that. That's another but, problem. That was you know the other I mean? problem. Is they had the American colonies became so diverse um, that, you know, not only were they of, of uh, different um, cultures, but, you know, 
they had different religions and you know, like the, the the Dutch and the German and the Swedish and the you know then the 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 English the French and the Spanish and they, so they all came and they were all different and the diversity of the colonies was one thing that kept you know it from becoming a mini um, England because of the differences here and uh, so they had. And plus, the English nobility looked upon the wealthy Americans who had made it here, and and you know were because it started in Virginia, where and and the Carolinas, where the wealthiest families would go on to the council. The royal governor would the royal governor picked the council, and of course he picked people that were loyal to the crown. Well, as the 1750s went into the 60s and King George III came in and, and the Parliament decided to start doing all these taxation things, it was harder and harder for the governors of the, of the, the colonies to find councilmen who were not opposed. Because they, the, 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 English, the English nobility looked upon the, the wealthy you know, like the what the, the um, this family or the Pens or the the uh, um, oh the Hudson Valley people and Massachusetts families that you know had been here and they they had become wealthy and they had great estates and they were you know on the upper crust of of the stratosphere of the colonies. They still didn't make the cut. To the English nobility, they 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 were they were um, less than they they were one of these in today's vernacular. So the nobility here, you know, and and this pissed off the colonists. You know, how dare you look at us like we're you know lower than than you know a beggar? Yeah, I mean, here we've been running this for for a hundred and fifty years. And then you come in and you say that we're, you know, we're not worth, we're not equal to you when we're basically doing the same thing. So anyway, there was a lot of big problems. And the councils became, um, became the councils were where the lords and the, the dukes and all those, you know, titles would have been appointed. The House of Assembly were the landowners. So, you know, the wealthy landowners from the local area. Well, the governors were finding it harder and harder to find, uh, you know, the council. So everything was just falling apart. And and the the well-to-do here in America were getting a little annoyed with that um, attitude. Do you have that essay, uh, the ignoble essay? Yeah. Yes, I do. Is it up? Well, it will be in a minute. Okay. This is going to explain. She's going to read the first five pages because I went through the whole thing, well, almost the whole thing. And it's just the rest of it, it is very interesting, but it was just getting too heady and in the weeds. And I think the first five pages really explain why this um, form of government, why the the aristocracy did not hold in the American um, colonies. First of all, yeah. they were very, very religious people. 
All right. Right. Yeah, and, and this this was um let me see. Oh god. I know I've been reading it too and and I just I got to the eighties and I had to stop, but um oh it, it's a wonderful, wonderful essay. Uh if you ever get to you know, if you wanna find out more about this whole thing. Um it it's called Ignoble Society Flash, the Failure of British Nobility in Early America by John Keith Edgerton um, from the University of Montana. <laughs> it's over at scholarworks.umt.edu. Uh, um, so, it, uh, okay, come on, little tablet. I know you can handle it. We read it before. Alrighty. So. Let me get to the beginning here. Um, yeah, the introduction. Yeah, I'm looking for the the uh, Thomas Paine quote here. Thomas Paine and the Rights of Man. He starts he starts his uh, essay with this: uh, The aristocracy are not the farmers who work the land and raise the produce, but are the mere consumers of the rent. And when compared to the active world, are the drones who neither collect the honey nor form the hive, but exist only for lazy enjoyment. I love that. And that's what we freaking have in Washington, D.C., but anyways. Okay, this is the introduction, and, and this pretty much sums it up. And if you want greater details about how it all came about, um, wonderful, wonderful essay. Every Englishman loves the Lord is an old English saying. Its origins unknown, though popularized in 17th and 18th century England. In essence, it means that Englishmen then and now are enamored by the idea of heraldry, peerage, titles of nobility, and the like. The presence of a titled nobility has long been a hallmark of British society and suggests an easily identifiable social order, rigid, rigid social stratification, and at least a modicum of deference afforded those titled elites by the lower, less privileged classes. Moreover, members of this aristocratic class in England have, over the course of history, legitimized their status by a variety of methods, but none more visible and important than the accumulation of power in the second branch of the government, the House of Lords. Now, that would be uh, the same as the council here. That's what they were trying to do um, and so the the council that they talk about uh, is is uh, the the House of Lords in England. In recent times, the Lords have steadily lost tangible power, as has the monarch. Both have given way to the dominance of the House of Commons, the representative body in the English system, and that would be our assembly that they talk about in the colonies. During the 17th and 18th centuries, however, the House of Lords reached its zenith of power and played an integral part in what many contemporary political theorists term the perfect constitution, in quotes, the English-stylized phenomenon of mixed government. The constitutional theory was not new. Aristotle had first postulated it in the 4th century BC, yet it took some 2,000 years to reach practical fruition. In feudal England, after the Norman conquest, great landed barons acted as advisors to the king and increased their power and political status. Um, gradually, over the course 
of the Middle Ages, this feudal aristocracy played an important role in developing constitutional hierarchy. Partially as a dividend of the social-political tumult of the 17th century, each facet of the English political society, the monarch, the aristocracy, and the representatives of the land-owning gentry, members of the House of Commons, emerged into what many held as a perfectly balanced system of government. Each branch theoretically shared an equal amount of power and was thus able to check any excesses of the other two. Through this combination, perpetual tranquility could be ensured in both government and society. The early English settlers transported this theory to the New World, though initially failing to put it into actual practice in their frontier societies. Many officials hoped these quasi-mixed governments in miniature would come with time to mirror the excellence of the mother country's constitution. As a beneficial result, political strife would become non-existent and harmonious governing would be ensured. The natural fruits of this harmony could only be increased mercantilist efficiency, and with that, more profit would eventually flow from the colonies to England. As the colonial governments evolved, however, it became obvious that the nemesis of the British model had been only partially realized. By the early 18th century, the House of Commons was clearly symbolized in the form of the Colonial Assembly, the institution that embodied the locally elected representatives of the people. The monarch, too, in the person of the king's vicegerent. Oh, that's a V-I-C-E-G-E-R-E-N-T. I I don't know how to say that word. I thought it was... uh, uh, vice agent, but it's not. I'm, I w- didn't read it correctly the first time. <laughs> the appointed royal governor ruled in an executive capacity in most colonies, but the nobility, represented in the House of Lords in England, was acutely absent in colonial America. Attempts were made throughout colonial history to remedy this defect. The Colonial Council, established during the 17th century settlements, consisted of a group of the wealthiest men in the various societies, usually 12 in number, who were chosen by the governor or appointed in Britain to fulfill the constitutional role of the American House of Lords. But as Michael Kamen, an eminent historian of the period, has written, no one really knew how to define the proper role and identity of the Colonial Council. It was not quite a cabinet, but not quite a counterpart of the House of Lords either. To further complicate its ambiguous position, it had no colony-wide uniform instructions or traditions to follow. Moreover, counselors in America, in contrast to the English counterparts, held no special privileges, no titles, no hereditary honors, nor any other attributes to distinguish them from other colonial Americans. This was of significance because, to paraphrase the venerable historian R.R. Palmer, quote, For to be an aristocrat, it is not enough to think of oneself as such. It is necessary to be thought so by others, unquote. As a result of this lack of legitimacy and this confused identity, the members of the various councils, by the eve of the revolutionary crisis, had become either creatures of the people, as one royal governor complained, or flatterers and pawns at the disposal of politically pressured governors. Yet, as another colonial scholar, Bernard Balin, has noted, these were the bodies expected to maintain, by their independence from pressures generated above and below, the balance of the whole. 
The fact that they could not do so was considered a major failing of colonial government. This lack of security, legitimacy, and identity led to several significant political problems in the developing colonies, none of which proved more important or debilitating than a marked instability in the realm of colonial and provincial politics. This instability, mildly present in the decades prior to the revolution, became especially acute after 1763, (coughs) contributed heavily to the growing revolutionary tension and led many royal officials, both in America and Great Britain, into frenzied but unsuccessful attempts at creating artificial nobilities in the colonies in hopes of balancing and stabilizing the inchoate nature of early American government. Their lack of success is perplexing. 18th century America was in the process of becoming more like the mother country, undergoing what historians have recently termed the Anglicanism, Anglicization of their respective societies. This metamorphosis took various forms, ranging from colonial mimicking of religious habits and practices to the imitation of 18th century English Whig opposition political culture. Why then did a nobility in pre revolutionary America fail to take hold, particularly in light of the above, and what were the ultimate ramifications of its absence? Answers to these questions are complex, but analysis can provide clues to the chaotic American political situation as it existed on the eve of the revolution. By examining the stillbirth of the titled nobility in America, we can better understand our colonial relationship with Great Britain. More importantly, we can begin to tie further loose strands together in our continuing quest at comprehending just how revolutionary our actions some two centuries ago really were. And uh, let's see if I can. There was just one other little part that I wanted to read. Um, ta-da. 24, 25, 26. Um, okay, and it, this is kind of explains it too. It says, um, by the 1640s, the original group of English elites had succumbed to disease and repeated Indian attacks or had simply given up and gone back to England. It was supplanted by an indigenous, tougher, coarser native elite which had made its fortunes off of tobacco. Um, come on, move. These new aristocrats, if they can be characterized as such, solidified their positions through intermarriage and near permanent tenure on the colonial council. It is this stage, Balin argues, that marks the emergence of Virginia's colonial aristocracy, a native elite that remained at the top of Virginia's and later America's political, economic, and social ladder for almost the next two centuries. So that's what happened in you know a hundred years before, and um, you know they they I mean they even could you you could purchase a pedigree back then uh, if you really wanted to so. They they tried to start it, but again, um, the nobility in England took these took these uh, the the new aristocracy in the colonies to be usurpers and upstarts, and not even close to being on their level. And that's and they and they kept acting like that. So you know. It, it really, and then when they they sent over um, in, in the right, oh, 
right before the revolution, they sent over a statesman to to be appointed to the council. They they came over from England and Scotland, and they had never been to America. They had no idea how America worked, and they came over to to tell us how to live. And they they looked down their noses at the local people, no matter how wealthy they were. They still because they were appointed by the king, and that really roiled, especially in Massachusetts. That did not go down well at all. I didn't know about this until I read that essay, and that makes a lot more sense to me um, why they were so riled up and why they took after the governors. And, and, you know, Bernard had to go away, and then Hutchinson came in, and, and they burned his house down. I mean, when you're looked at as inferior by people who had, had never been here before, uh, no. So that, again, you know, that's the American spirit. Certainly wasn't the English. Oh, the the other, also, wonderful. The, the other thing also is a lot of these people lived under lords and barons and the, the whole like, and they, they escaped to get away from that kind of rule. Well, that's the thing. They they could make a living here. A lot a lot of the first people that came over to the colonies were um, uh, second sons, third sons, you know, because they didn't get to inherit the title if, if they were the second, third, and fourth son. They didn't get anything. So they came over here and... And they brought and they brought indentured servants. Well, the thing is, is they found out that indentured, you know, that they could they could do really well. They could they could, um, you know, not not have to just work to pay the rent for to the aristocracy. They could own something here. They could do well. They could become wealthy with no restraint of class. Exactly. You know, and the nobility, well, they had everything they needed over there. They just wanted the, the resources here and the, and the money to be made from it. You know, they, they wanted the, the colonists to be their, their uh, well, basically their slaves, indentured servants and slaves. You know, you, you, you work, do the hard work, and I'll reap the benefits. Right, and that's exactly what we're doing right now with this friggin' immigration. I mean, legal or illegal, I'm calling for immigration to halt for five to ten years in this country. Done. Yep. Over. Nobody gets to come back in because we are creating a slave class, just like yep. they thought when they did that to the colonists, and the colonists fought back. Well, you don't want this fight, ladies and gentlemen, so you might as well just call for the halting of all immigrants. Anyway, let's get back to the woman history blog. Soon after his return to the country, Sterling closed his mercantile business and began building a summer residence on the estate at Basking Ridge, New Jersey. This track of about 700, oh, I need you to get up the New Jersey Regiment. Okay. Okay. Um, let's see. This track of about 700 acres was inherited from his father, James Alexander. The most skilled gardeners in America were hired to design and lay out the immense park containing an enclosure for deer, a rose garden, an Italian vineyard, and other accessories. 
The estate was chiefly meadowland, but a gently sloping knoll near the center of the track furnished a beautiful site for the stately residence be erected there. It was known as the building, and this large dwelling, together with its connecting, connecting offices, stables, and coach houses, were ornamented with cupolas and gilded veins and surrounded a paved court or quadrangle. There was a grand hall and an imposing drawing room with richly decorated walls and stucco ceilings. In 1768, Sterling sold his home in New York and retired with his family to the Baskin Ridge Estate. His wife, Lady Sarah, and two daughters, Lady Mary and Lady Kitty, were the admiration of the surrounding country. During the early years of the war, his manor house among the hills of Basking Ridge was still a center of social activity. The improvement of his estate and public duties as Surveyor General of New Jersey and members of the Provincial Council occupied his energies until the American Revolution. At the first sign of the severance of the relations between the colonies and the British government, Lord Sterling ardently embraced the cause of liberty. And I love, this is a, there's so many people that we've talked about that they did have loyalty to England, and as soon as it broke out, like Mr. Dickinson, he was all in, you know? It was just, it, it's just amazing to me because of what's going on right now. And McCain, go away. I don't yeah. care if you have a brain tumor. I think that's what's been bothering you, how you've been acting for these past couple of years. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm sorry. Somebody that has a freaking a brain tumor, that's going to cloud their judgment. I can't even believe he's still walking around. Sorry about that, but he wasn't a war hero, and uh, he doesn't need to be doing what he's doing because I don't even know if he's in his right mind. And this is coming from a nurse. Okay, so he's all in. He became a personal friend of George Washington who placed the utmost confidence in his ability and integrity. Oh, let's see. Um... Okay, here this American nobleman lived the life of a gentleman of fortune. He rode a great coach with gilded panels and boys with coronets and medallions. Lord Sterling was so generous to the poor on the outskirts of his estate that they bobbed and curtsied to him whenever he passed in his carriage. So him and his wife and his, their children, even though they're very filthy rich, again, this is the difference between the noble people, the noblemen in England and Europe and us because we were inherited, we were Christians. That's the difference. We believed in a higher power that was a divine that, that gave us this great land. And even though he was, he was a noble to, you know, to the people around him, he was still a generous man. And they loved him for it. He wasn't cruel. He wasn't haughty. We didn't have that here. A lot, most people were not haughty here in the United States. They are now, but not back then. Um, he dabbed in mining and agriculture and lived a life befitting an English lord. This was an expensive lifestyle, and by the early 1700s, after spending so much of his inheritance in England trying to claim his lordship, Alexander was bankrupt. Again, he was giving money to the poor and helping them out. Only his position in society had kept him afloat. Despite expensive failures in mining operations and a failed sale of lottery tickets, for his huge and heavily mortgaged real estate holding. In the end, only his leadership in the Revolutionary Army kept him out of jail. When the Revolutionary War began, William Alexander raised the first of two regiments of militia raised in New Jersey. 
Okay. And those who are unable to do otherwise, he equipped at his own expense. He's broke and he's still giving money to the cause. Not running around like these frogs screaming about stuff, uh, like Maxine Waters. And by the way, Deb, it really chafes my rear that all of these politicians that are supposed to be servants are all filthy rich. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, inside trading. Anyway, it's your turn for the uh, regiment. Okay. All righty. So this is from uh, Revolutionary War Talk. The 1st New Jersey Regiment was the first organized militia regiment in New Jersey, formed in 1673 in Piscataway to repel foreign Indians who came down from Upper Pennsylvania and Western New York in the summer to our shores and fill themselves with fishes and clams on the way back, make a general nuisance of themselves by burning haystacks, corn fodder, and even barns. All of New Jersey's regular organized military forces trace their lineage to this first provincial militia unit. The regiment's allegiance was to the British Crown until 1775 when the regiment was raised for service in the Continental Army during the American Revolutionary War. Okay, now I'm stuck, but I will continue on um, as soon as I can here. Okay, ta-da. Hold on, just a minute. <laughs> my poor little, my poor little tablet's getting such a workout. Okay, here we go. Okay, now in October 1775, Congress authorized raising two battalions from New Jersey for one year of continental service. The Eastern Battalion, raised primarily in seven counties of Eastern New Jersey, is designated the first. New Jersey Regiment under the command of Colonel William Alexander, Lord Sterling, with Lieutenant Colonel William Wins and Major William DeHart. The rest of 75 is spent recruiting and equipping the various companies of the regiment. In uh, 17, January 1776, Sterling writes to Congress that the regiment is still very deficient in arms, blankets, and almost every ne necessary. A detachment from the regiment is sent to Long Island to arrest loyalists there. Later in the month, about 40 men from the 1st New Jersey under Sterling, along with more than 80 volunteers from Elizabethtown, participate in the taking of the British supply vessel Blue Mountain Valley and receives the thanks of Congress. Um, Sterling is promoted to Brigadier General and succeeded as Colonel by William Wins. At the same time, Congress appoints Matthias Ogden to Lieutenant Colonel ahead of William DeHart in recognition of his volunteer service with Benedict Arnold in the expedition to Quebec. The appointment is protested by Wins and the line officers of the regiment, but remains in effect. And in uh, the spring, the regiment is based in New York, where it is employed with making cartridges and building fortifications and makes brief expeditions to Long Island and in response to an alarm on Staten Island. And now they're uh, ordered in uh, the summer to the Northern Department to support the American forces in Canada. And it reaches Sorrel at the mouth of the Richelieu River and moves toward Trois-Rivières, but does not play any major role in that action. And then following their retreat from Canada, the first New Jersey is stationed in the defense of Fort Ticonderoga. 
and builds the Jersey Redoubt. William Scotch, Willie Maxwell, Colonel of the Second New Jersey, is made Brigadier General. And it goes on and on. But they they were all through the war. They fought everywhere. Um, let's see. Uh, yeah. Um, so these these uh people they they and Sterling was uh he was put someplace else by this time. So it was Ogden, DeHart, and uh, Wins and Maxwell that uh, kept him going for the next, uh, let's see, for the next few years, actually. So um, there's some other, you know, colonels and lieutenants that come in. But uh, they, they, they were all over the place. Um, and, and they weren't just all New Jersey people. They, they they were also made up of Pennsylvania and Connecticut and surrounding areas. Um and they, they just they just fought throughout the whole war. Uh let's see. They were based in uh in uh 81 to 82, they, they, the first New Jersey was based in Hudson Highlands at the New Windsor Cantonment. Colonel Ogden is selected as a part of a deputation from officers of the Army to represent interest before Congress. Dissatisfaction in the Army leads to the Newburgh Conspiracy. And uh, by the end of the war, the 1st New Jersey is the state's sole continental regiment. Officers and men are furloughed on June 1783 upon news of a preliminary peace treaty, but not discharged until November 1783, following news brought back from Europe by Colonel Matthias Ogden of a definitive peace treaty that ends the war. So, they, uh, they were... Uh, a child of the original militia, first united or first uh, militia, first New Jersey militia. They were the child of that, and they they just they kicked butt, really. So, and if you want to go over there, this is from the uh, first NJ dot org or number one, the the, the numeral one NJ dot org site. And it tells you the history of the regiment, and it tells you um, about the the uh, commanders and such. So there you go. Well, and again, he equipped them himself, yeah. which is taking money and resources from um, Lady Sterling from Sarah. Yeah. A lot of them did that, you know, the ones that could. A lot of them died poor because of it. All right. So, um, did the, we did the regiment. Um, and this essay says, Alexander was soldierly in bearing, according to one writer, of the most martial appearance of any general in the army save Washington himself. He was brave, intelligent, energetic, yet cautious, a good organizer and military engineer. 
a great acquisition to the army. In January 1776, with 40 volunteers in a pilot boat, Alexander captured the armed British transport, the Blue Mountain, near Sandy Hook, which was laden with stores and provisions for the British troops at Boston, and carried it into the port at, you know, you're going to have to get the stuff about the boat. Oh, yeah. Okay, well, boy, was that hard to find. I okay, know about, every, I know about every warship there was. So. Okay, but well, let me finish this paragraph, okay? Oh, okay. Yeah, you, you get it up. Um, yeah. For the British right. troops at Boston and carried it into the port at Perth Amboy. For this bold feat, he received the earliest votes of thanks for, of Congress. And on March 1st, 1776, the commission of Brigadier General in the Continental Army, which um, Deb had just read. Now, this is all going on, and Sarah's at home with her two children in this big, huge mansion. And, of course, she's getting word, you know, she's getting word of what her husband is doing. Uh, she's getting word of, because it was easier for a person that was connected with everybody um, to get word of what was going on in the war than somebody who was living out on, say, on the frontier. I mean, they were not, they were, I mean, this, this was rural, but it wasn't the frontier. It was easier to get information um, back and forth about what was happening. So she's getting this information about what her husband's doing. And again, she's alone because he had gone up to England. And then when he came back, he joined the Revolutionary War right away. So she's basically running the whole estate and raising her kids and helping her neighbors by herself. Well, you know, you know what I mean, Deb. I mean, she has helpers, but still, if the whole thing falls on her shoulders. She's the ultimate uh, uh, arbiter of decision-making. So, yeah, and, and she couldn't, I mean, they, yes, they could write back and forth, but it wasn't like picking up the phone or, or calling his cell phone or texting him and going, okay, I have this, I, I need your advice on this. She, she, it's all the decisions were, thank God she was the woman she was because um, she had been, she had been taking care of things for, you know, a good part of her life. Thank God all of our founding mothers were the way they were. Mm-hmm. Okay. So do you have about the boat? Okay. Well, you know, they talk about British transport ships, but damned if I could find a good description. Basically, think of a ship, an 18th century ship, that was, big enough to put a battalion of troops on it or, or more than that, plus any passengers, plus any supplies. So that's a, a British transport trip, and that's the ones that they, a lot of times they use for prison ships because they had the room on it. I mean, it wasn't comfortable. It wasn't elegant. It was a transport Ship. Think of like the T one thirty of ships, you know. Um, the warships had the the cannons. You know, they they had um, the different warships that they used had the cannon, the cannonry, cannon, uh, whatever they called it, um, cannonade, cannonade. 
But it had a lot of cannons on there. So they were the warships, and um, they were the ones that uh, were brought in to blockade the, the harbors. The transport ships came into New York uh, to, or, you know, wherever they, the ports that, a lot of times it was New York, but they, you know, in the Southern Theater, they, they tried to, to uh, come in. Anyways, they, what they would do is, is transport the fresh troops, take back the, the used up troops, bring supplies and everything. They were, they were big, you know, for the, the ship at their time. I mean, we look at the ships now and they're, they're small. I mean, I don't know how they did it, but, oh, God, the trip over must have been horrendous. Um the, um, let's see the if you want to read about you know read about the the Gatsby, the the longboats that went out to uh, and, and and put the Gatsby to to on fire, you know that pretty much tells you how the colonists fought a lot of the war because we didn't have a navy. They started building ships, but back then building ships took a long time. And um, so there were like two ships built at the first part of the Revolutionary War. But what they did was uh, they had the piloting, the pilot that would take in their smaller ships like um, cutters or schooners that would lead the larger ships up the waterways. Because remember we talked about how the roads were pathetic at best. Most of them were no more than horse paths or footpaths, you know. The wagon roads were far and few between, and they were not even in the greatest of shape. So traveling was much quicker and easier over the waterways. And the pilots, um, you know, and, and they were a lot of times fishermen. You know, they, that's what they did for a living, but then they would also pilot the, the ships up the rivers. And then on the coast, fishermen, whalers, uh, they had their, their schooners and their, their cutters um, and their whaleboats, and they would lead the ships in to the, the coast because along the coast, of course, there were, you know, jagged rocks and, and, and sand bars that, you know, at a certain time of the day were totally covered and you had to know where they were. And if you were coming in, you know, you had, it's like you're not that familiar with this this uh, harbor, you had a pilot. And they would row out, they would row out to the, uh, or sometimes they would row out there, they would take their, sometimes they rowed out in their longboat See, I'm trying to remember because I just got bits and pieces from here and there. Um, they would take their longboats out, and the, the pilot would get on the ship, the lead ship, if there were more than one, and, and he would pilot the ship into the harbor. Other times, they would um, stay on their boat if they had a, a, cut, a cutter or a schooner or whaleboat, and they would lead the ships in so the ships would just follow them their their path because they knew where to what to avoid and you know and where not to go so that that was they were very small they were uh let's see 
um, there was a Sandy Hook pilot, uh, and they've been, um, because along along uh, lying below the surface of the bay and extending from the tip of Sandy Hook to the south shore of Long Island is a series of shoals that separate the sheltered estuary of New York Harbor from the deep waters of the Atlantic, known as the Bar of Sandy Hook. For over three centuries, the mariners tasked with guiding the ships across this bar have been known as Sandy Hook pilots. So, I mean, the earliest pilots on our coast were in the oceanic service employed as explorers, tasked with sounding and surveying the harbors for their respective European governments. Henry Hudson used his keel lewd for three days from the deck of the half main, sounding and charting the lower bay. So that's how they how they found out. The explorers came out. You know, it's like the surveyors uh, of the land. These were the surveyors of the coast. And... Uh, they um let's see they the need for local knowledge of tides, currents, shoals, and navigational hand hazards um prompted this change where pilotage became a more local profession so uh that that's they would and let's see here it goes uh I mean, they, they, it's really an interesting history of the Sandy Hook pilots, but they don't really go into what, you know, type of uh, uh, ships they used. But in other parts, I read about the, uh, you know, the schooners and the cutters and the whaling boats, which, of course, were much smaller than the, the warships coming in. And they could, you know, travel or traverse the, the harbors. So there you are. Are you multitasking? Am I the? I'm right here. <laughs> <laughs> I heard. I heard this noise like you were rearranging something. Oh, that was just my glass. Oh. <laughs> okay, so um, that was a big deal that he did that, and. Then we're going back to the Women's History blog. In 1776, while William was at White Plains, and this is what Deb was bringing up, they had him all over the place and had this regiment all over the place. Sarah joined him in camp. While there, she went to New York, then in possession of the British, with her youngest daughter, Lady Catherine Alexander. They visited the eldest daughter, Mary, whose husband, Robert Watts, had remained quietly in the city, taking no active part on either side of the revolution. And Deb would tore her hair out trying to find the letters of both mother and daughter descriptive of this visit show the situation and temper of those Americans who had remained in the city during its occupation by the enemy. And she said it was probably in the library of New Jersey. Yeah. Yeah, they had the, the correspondence, um, the collection there, but it's not digitized as far as I could find. Right. Which is really sad. Hurry up with the digitization. Uh, Lady Catherine wrote about her hope of soon seeing her relatives as zealous patriots as herself. Watch, she says, is among the number of those who are hardly sick of the tyranny witness. And as to Mary, and this is talking about his, her daughter and her son-in-law, her political principles are perfectly rebellious. 
Sentiments of a great number have undergone a thorough change since they have been with the British Army, as they have many opportunities of seeing flagrant acts of injustice and cruelty of which they could not have believed their friends capable because they were there. Philadelphia and New York was captured very early because there was a lot of loyalists in Philadelphia and New York. Um, this convinces them that if they conquer, we must live in abject slavery. Lady Sterling exhibited her patriotism when she refused to take advantage of the permission sent from Sir Henry Clinton to take anything she pleased out of the city, fearing, quote, there would be a handle made of it if she accepted the offer. The last time I saw him, he told me I must. Well, again, they were, they were, you know, he, word goes around in these circles, and I'm sure all these generals knew that he had gone, um, uh, William Alexander had gone back to England and was trying to get his, um, inheritance and they all knew that they were called lord and lady so they figured if they did this and she accepted she knew she would be branded as a loyalist right Mm -hmm. so that's why she didn't but that's why clinton wanted her to do it oh god another clinton that's an idiot disgusting man um that's why he wanted her to do it because then it would it, it would uh tarnish her and her husband and put her as a loyalist, and she wasn't going for it. And to tell you the truth, I wouldn't even, I, gosh. You know, just like, it just reminds me of all these women that are supposed to be, oh, we're empowered in the glass ceiling and all this other crap that's up in Congress. And they're just, they're just falling for anything that anyone's going to give them so that they seem important. Yep. You know, I mean, I was a nurse for a long time, and, and I constantly bucked the establishment. And everyone kept saying, you're going to get fired, you're going to get fired. Well, then fire me. You know, I have a life. You know, then this is the same thing that this example of her. She could have done that, but she was like, no, I have integrity. These women these days do not have an ounce of integrity. Nope. And that's why Barbara, that's why uh, Bachman, I forget her first name, she left, like, after her first term because she was, like, she has integrity, and she's like, I can't do this in Washington. Yeah. I mean, I'd yeah. say that just to be a pain in their butt. They'd hate my guts. But, you know, I've had many people hate my guts. Many of charge nurse hate my guts. Many of administrators are hate my guts. But there was nothing that they could do about it because I stood on principle. That's what this, that's what Sarah's doing right now. Yeah. And that's the thing. The principle, well, we've gotten away from principle. Now it's just, what can I get out of this? Yep. And you'll fall for anything if you don't have principle. You'll you'll do anything as long as there's a, 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 a desired result for, for you. Not necessarily anybody else. Just for you. So the last time I saw him, and this is Sarah talking about uh, Henry Clinton, he told me I must take a box of tea, but I stuck to my text. In February 1777, when General Nathaniel Green's division of the Continental Army moved to Baskin Ridge, 
The general's headquarters were at the building, which is her home, where he was the guest of Lady Sterling and her daughter, Lady Kitty. The latter was married there to Colonel William Dewar on July 1779, which was remembered as a brilliant social event. So these people, even though all this horror is around them, they're trying to keep their chins up. <laughs> yeah. And again, she was so smart in doing, refusing what Clinton had told her because if she was branded a loyalist, all, all, her, whole, all her possessions could be taken away from her. We've reported on this how many times? Mm-hmm. Yeah, unless you the oath of allegiance. Right. Many exiles from New York and other places had retreated there with their families for safety, and it was naturally the social center of the surrounding country. During the war, Sarah's brother, Governor William Livingston of New Jersey, moved his family from Elizabethtown to Basking Ridge for safety. So she's hosting armies. She's hosting refugees. I mean, and her husband's off to war, you know. Uh, you know, Deb, these women are incredible. And all I keep thinking is every time I hear Maxine Waters open her pie hole. I know, and and if you if we could go back in time, and and look at them and and tell them, God, you're incredible, how you how you dealt with this situation, war being you know your husband's away, your son's away for those who had sons in the war, and and uh, you you know you those who lost their property, if you said to them, God, you're incredible, they would go, No, we just did what we had to do. Exactly. Exactly. That's just like the women of the Civil War. That's just like the women that went through World War One and World War Two. Mm-hmm. Um, it started to fall apart after the Korean War as far as uh, these women being virtuous. Forget mm-hmm. about the Vietnam War. I mean, that was just a complete disaster. Um, and that's when, like you say all the time, the Bolsheviks were like here full time. And they had started in the 1800s, but it was a, a slow slog. Um and it just accelerated during the, the Vietnam War. Um, uh, let's see. Uh, is there something else that we need to get in for? Because the rest of this article, ladies and gentlemen, is going to be about him in battle. So um, I don't want to get into the weeds with it as far as because it, it also has the Battle of Long Island, which we've actually done a couple of times on this show. Yeah. Is there anything else you want to add to it until... Um, Let's see. We have I'm a whole half hour. <laughs> mm-hmm. We have a whole half hour left. I know. I thought that this um, article would have more of what she did. Because they yeah, did start with her. Thing, but... Well, they probably, I mean, I probably could spend a month at the New Jersey Library, you know, with her correspondence and everything, because a lot of her correspondence was before she was married, and we must read, uh, let's see, how old was she when she got married? She was born in 25, she got married in 48, at 3, let's see, um, okay, do math for me, I, I'm too tired, my my grandkids have just wore me out already. Um, I should know this. Let's see. It's uh, 25. Oh, 20, she was 23? 
Yeah, around there. Yeah. So, um, you know, I would love to, and then especially, let's see, in 25. Now, it's really interesting because in this essay that we're reading about the nobility, um, they kept trying. I mean, even in the early, like when she was born, the, the, the first half of the 1700s, there were those who still tried to establish a nobility here and, of course, you know, being, um, they wanted that, that middle, they wanted the House of Lords here. They really did. They, they thought that that was the only way that the governments were, you know, the colonial governments could function if they had the, the, this, the equivalent to the House of Lords, i.e. the, the, the consul, the colonists. Colony, colonial council, and so here she is. She's. Um, I wonder, cause she wasn't a lady before she met married him. I mean, she didn't. Uh, no, she inherited. She inherited that title. And um, going on that vein, I just found two different things that we have to go into on this article, which is really important. What you're talking about. Um, okay. Let's see. This is. Uh, da, da, da. Oh, where did I? Because it, Washington is constantly, um, what do you say, uh, uh, getting Alexander up the line of um, the generals. And he made him, I just thought, and now I found this other thing, <laughs> and I had to go there. Um, he made him the head of the Northern uh, Theater. Yeah. Which was a huge thing, and you know, you she's got to know that he. I mean, this brought a big, this brought a lot of attention to him, and he was really wanted. I mean, the British really wanted him, and it does say here in this art in this essay. But um, that was a big thing for her as well, because as he's going through the ranks, that's what I meant to say. As he's going through the ranks, that puts her and her family in more jeopardy, doesn't it? Well, yes, yes, uh, as we've so noted before, um, all through the war, and, and, and even before it was officially started, uh, the king, King George III was a different stripe than the previous king. He, he really, he, he wanted to, as I said before, he wanted to be more hands-on and uh, control a lot more than his predecessors did. Uh, in the colonies, especially the American colonies. And then when, you know, he got wind of the, uh, you know, the opposition and the, the rebellious ones, um, it was a rebellion to him. And, and he he put out that you capture, I mean, these generals, Cornwallis and Clinton and Howe and, you know, the, the big generals that came over, that he sent over of the British armies, they were supposed to capture as many of these rebels as possible, and, you know, from Sam Adams all the way down to George Washington and then even his generals. Uh, they, they, they really wanted them captured. They were prized, and they were going to bring them back over to England and, and you know, have a ha, ha, ha trial and then hang them for treason. Well, yeah, and it says right here, that um, 
Washington named General uh, named Alexander General of the Army of the North. Yes. So he was an, a second tier general. Um, yeah. He was. I mean, that was that was in the early part of the war where, you know, uh, they were trying to take Canada, the Americans, because the British had taken it from the French, and they wanted the Canada to become a colony, you know, well, part of the, the America. Now, you might know this because you have um, George Washington's uh, book, but I just found this in the essay, and we haven't talked about this, and this has to do with William Alexander. In the melancholy winter of 1777 to 78 at Valley Forge, William Alexander played a part in exposing the Conway Cabal. Uh-huh. You know that? Uh-huh. A con- now, and what's going on right now? Yep. Yep, with President Trump. A conspiracy of disaffected officers looking to remove Washington as commander of the Continental Army and replace him with General Horatio Gates. Alexander overheard a conversation between the conspirators and reported their remarks to Washington. It was named after Brigadier General Thomas Conway, whose letters criticizing Washington were forwarded to the Continental Congress. The The proposed removal failed when it became public. Conway resigned, and General Horatio Gates apologized to Washington. Oh. My. God. Yeah, you should really look that up and read about it more in detail. It, it I, was, have it, I have it up right here. Yeah, it, it was really, um, it, it was very interesting. I mean, there's nothing new under the sun. Okay, so it says Thomas Conway came from an Irish-born Catholic family that had fled to France because of English oppression when he was six. He served for years in French military, also under the legendary Prussian Frederick the Great before coming to America, to, quote, increase my fortune and that of my family, end quote. He made a good first impression on Washington, who found him a man of candor, infinitely better qualified to serve us than many who have been promoted as he speaks our language. That is exactly what Donald Trump has said about everybody that he's surrounding himself with. Almost exactly. Especially this idiot that's up there now. What the heck's his name? Which one? Mac, Mac, uh, the the general. Oh, McMaster? Yeah. He he just appointed two uh, Muslim Brotherhood holdovers from Obama and fired the people that uh, Trump had in there. Yeah, we got to get rid of him. Fire them all, Trump, and keep tweeting. My president. Yes. Okay. Um, So Washington had faith in all the people that was around him, too. And they stabbed him. Many of them stabbed him in the back. Yep. Washington's new aide, the Marquis de Lafayette, who barely had turned 20, advised, advised his commander. General Conway is a so brave, intelligent, and active officer that he shall, I'm sure, justify more and more the esteem of the army in your approbation. Again, this is exactly what's happening in the White House right now. On May 13, 1777, Congress made Conway a brigadier general. 
But things soon soured. Washington was not impressed with Conway's performance at Germantown and even considered court-martialing him, according to another young aide. Don Lawrence, because Conway was a considerable time separated from his brigadier. Conway further disenchanted his admirers by lecturing them on what the great Frederick would have done had he been in the untutored American's place. Conway had a told-you-so look with bulging eyes. Um, let's see. Uh, da, da, da. Gates, Gates, Gates. He was getting, he wasn't uh, happy about Washington either. Um, okay. It's going, it gets like really, and then it gets Benedict Arnold in this too. Good Lord. Gosh, Deb, this is amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Lee, uh, General Lee, not not Harry Lightfoot Lee, but or his brother, but another Lee, Charles Charles Lee, was another one who tried to take down Washington. And look, there's leaking here too, with. Teasing illusion and shadowy inference, Henry Lawrence, the new president of Congress, wrote his son John about purported intrigue. Since John was an aide in Washington's useful circle, the warning surely was passed on to his chief to bore like pine beetles into Washington's tormented psyche. Henry Lawrence wrote that there was one man in particular, unnamed, whose idleness, duplicity, and criminal particularities in a certain circle laid the foundation of our present deplorable state. And he added that this was somebody Washington trusted, for whom he held the most favorable sentiments, Henry Lawrence discerned. Agents from our enemies, if not within doors, yet too closely connected with some who sat there, I will attend to all their movements and had set my face against every wicked attempt, however specious. I, this, I, I, my mouth is wide open right now. <laughs> Such warnings preyed on Washington. Who were these false friends? Miffin, his first aide at the start of the war, Richard Howard Lee, a fellow Virginian, John Adams, who had nominated him for command, Samuel Adams, who had seconded the motion, surely not the solicitous Dr. Rush. Now, Dr. Rush would not do this. None of these would do this. Um, the Army surgeon, until an anonymous letter crying for Washington's replacement was passed along to the general. Sadly, after having always received the strongest professions of attachment and regard from his surgeon general, Washington recognized Russia's handwriting. Really? Rush? Yep. Yep. Oh, yeah. Read more about Rush. Yeah, when you get a chance. Well, we did. We highlighted him. Yeah, but keep going past the Declaration of Independence. But. Lafayette consoled the man. Lafayette was, was awesome. Consoled yeah. the man. That's what I said. Lafayette reminds me of Steve Bannon. Don't go anywhere, Bannon. You stay right where you are. Everyone, they're jumping on him like crazy. Yeah, because he's he's right. Yep. And because he was from Breitbart. Yeah, get over it. Um, Lafayette consoled the man who had become his spiritual father in words that reflected their growing bond. He called Washington's detractors stupid men who, without knowing a single word about war, undertake to judge you. To make ridiculous comparisons, they are infatuated with Gates without thinking of the different circumstances. The young Frenchman made his own allegiance clear. 
I am now fixed to your fate, and I shall follow it and sustain it as well by my sword as by all means in my power. You will pardon my impaturity. Youth and friendship make perhaps myself too warm, but I feel the greatest concern of all what happens in some time with the most tenderest and profound respect. I have the honor to be, dear General, your most obedient, humble servant, Lafayette. The only people that my president can trust is his own damn family. Really? Huh? Yeah, really. I mean, that's it. Everybody he's put up there has been put up and stabbed him in the back. Mm-hmm. So, this was Conway's cabal. Conway then wrote to Congress offering his resignation, mainly because of his lack of promotion, but also mentioning his falling out with Washington. Washington had to wish the matter to remain private. <laughs> yeah, that's why Trump isn't. Nothing's private. That's how I'd be. You want to know something? Let's go. Can you take it? Right? Yeah. I cannot believe this happened all the way back in the revolution. The same thing that's going on since Trump has been elected, Deb. Uh, it's been going on ever since there have been politicians. Okay. Washington had wished the matter to remain private. After stating that only Congress could make such a decision, the general, with an icy formality, one can only imagine, responded, I shall not object to your departure since it's your inclination. He doubtless agreed with Conway's own words that he could serve more effectively in another part of the world. <laughs> That's what I wanted. McMaster, they need, he wants to send him to Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I love it. That's what I do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'll keep you around. You're going to another country. Yeah. Um, uh, but Congress did not accept Conway's resignation. Instead, because it's hard to do this kind of thing. That's why everyone was so devastated with um, Benedict Arnold, although we have already talked about how he wasn't really a traitor, just like this Conway. He's just, he was ambitious. He wasn't getting where he wanted to go. You know, there was a lot of different circumstances around Benedict Arnold. But again, we're like we have the resources of military leaders it was very limited in the in the uh, revolution. You know, Deb. Yep. Just to lose one was like, oh my gosh. I mean, it was just bad. It was yeah, bad. Unfortunately, Congress um, had a hand in this, and they would appoint their <laughs> excuse me <laughs> aristocratic friends as to be generals, and they would not have any military training, but because of their position in society and and such manners between men, uh, they became generals, and they, you know, God, it's a wonder we won, really. So this is what the Congress did. They've always been stupid. In a series of decisions remarkable in their heavy-handedness, Congress set up a new board of war to oversee Washington with Horatio Gates as president. That's brilliant. Conway was to be Washington's new inspector general. Yes. Wow. This was not, remember, you know how I say that, you know, this was not the Congress that started at the Revolutionary War? Because those 
those people were gone because they had to go into other, you know, um, other uh, positions or they just went back home. Um, these were the Congress of 78, 79, and 80 were, were much different fellows than the original Congresses. Some of them were, well, I was just going to say, some of them were very ambitious for themselves. On learning of Conway's elevation, Washington fired both barrels at Richard Henry Lee over as unfortunate a measure as was ever adopted. For the morale of, morale of his officers, Conway's importance in this army exists more in his own imagination than in reality. For it is a maximum to, with him to leave no service of his own untold. He added a poignant note that may be read as a threat of resignation. I have been a slave to the service. I have undergone more than most men are aware of. To harmonize so many discordant parts, but it will be impossible for me to be of any further service if such insuperable difficulties are thrown my way. Henry, Richard Henry Lee conceded that perhaps Conway's promotion might be such a might not but be such a good idea. Well, there you have it, because we're getting to the end, and I want to go back to... Um, but it was William Alexander that brought all this to light. If it wasn't for him, they wouldn't know. Because Al- Alexander overheard a conversation between the conspirators and reported their remarks to Washington. So it was named after Brigadier General Thomas Conway, whose letters criticizing Washington were forwarded to the Continental Congress. Proposed removal failed when it became public, and Conway resigned and General Horatio Gates apologized to Washington. So, um, let's see. When Washington took his army south in 1781, he appointed Alexander commander of the Northern Department at Albany. Always a heavy drinker, he was in poor health by this time, suffering from severe gout and rheumatism. Rheumatism. Among his last military reports was a letter to Governor Clinton, giving details of recent events in the Northern Department. General William Alexander Lord Sterling died at Albany on January 15, 1783, at the age of 57, which is young. His untimely death just months before the official end of the war is the probable reason that he is not well known today as many other generals. Still, his significant contributions made him one of the most important figures of the American Revolution. After his death, Lady Sterling received a letter of condolence from General Washington and said, my lady, having been informed by letter from Captain Sill of the unspeakable loss which her ladyship has experienced, I feel the sincerest sympathy whose sorrows which I am sensible cannot be removed or affected. For this purpose, I would also have suggested every rational topic of consolation were I not fully persuaded that the principles of philosophy and religion of which you are possessed had anticipated everything I could say on the subject. It only remains then as a small but just tribute to the memory of Lord Sterling to express how deeply I share the common affliction on being deprived of the public and professional assistance as well as the private friendship of an officer so high rank, with whom I have lived in the strictest habits of amity. 
and how much those military merits of his lordship, which rendered him respected in his lifetime, and now regretted by the whole army. It will doubtless be a soothing consideration in poignancy of your grief to find that the general officers are going into mourning for him. G. Washington. General Alexander's creditor stripped his mansion and his estate and put Lady Sterling out on the street. She lived out her life in a Manhattan rooming house. Sarah Livingston Alexander, Lady Sterling, died in March 1805 at the age of 79. How sad. I know. I imagine, though, she, she lived very nicely in great class and dignity. Well, one can only hope because you and I talked about this when we were doing the research. How come nobody helped her? I mean, she had kids. Yeah. Well, they they lost a lot of their stuff, too. I was reading about Catherine Kitty and um, Mary. Was it Mary? Mary, her other daughter? Yeah. Mary, yeah. Um, yeah. The, the Several of the family lost. The Livingstons and the Alexanders, they both lost quite a bit during the war. So maybe there weren't much to go around. Well, we're coming up at the top of the hour. I want to remind everybody to please go and arm yourself with knowledge. You can do that by visiting uncooperativeradio.com. Our show, The Women of the Revolution, is there. My husband and I show on Cooperative Radio there. And Patriots Pub, Patriots Pub, which is a three-year endeavor by three, three self-taught historians. You get nothing but the truth about the Continental Convention of 1787. Read from episode, listen from episode one, and you can download all of these shows. But go to uncooperativeradio.com, uncooperativeradio.com, and as always, Deb takes us out. Well, I thank y'all for coming and listening to our little our show here. That that points out that women women it's not just a, a modern concept of women's strength. Um, women have been strong forever. They've been constricted by society, yes, but we have always prevailed. Um, and also, if you would send a prayer for our kids in uniform. You know, we we still have them in really uh, dangerous areas. And unfortunately, uh, the suits don't really know what to do at this point. And, and I'm really hoping that uh, they get the, the military straightened out because uh, some of the things that I hear my daughter talk about is, is mind-blowing. But anyways, keep after your representatives and senators and your local uh, delegates or, or legislators because we really need us to also be on a local level. And as I always say, if you have a VA hospital nearby, go visit. Visit with the, the guys and the gals there, young and old. Ask them how they're doing. And if they have anything that upsets you, make sure you make a lot of noise about it. Go right to the administrator if you have to. 
and uh, let them know that you're uh, aware, that you're watching, and that they better be taking damn good care of our veterans. And then you can, uh, you know, talk to reporters and you can talk to your Congress critters and anybody else who will listen. So we mustn't forget them when they come home. And, or, God, they, you would never know we were still at war if you watched the media. Um, anyways, we are, and our kids are out there in danger, and uh, so say a prayer for them and the families that are waiting for them to come home all safe and sound. And have a blessed week, and stay safe out there, and uh, keep your powder dry, and and educate yourself on why this country is exceptional, because it is. And with that, God bless you, God bless America, and good night. Loki, miss you. We'll see you next week. Things seem to be going well, so I'm not going to jinx it. So see you next week. Same time, same place.
Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, Lil. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.